Imagine a football platform where the world's best writers give you the real story about what's going on at United. Imagine no pop-up ads, no clickbait headlines and no ridiculous rumours to be let down by anymore. You don't have to imagine anymore. Meet The Athletic. No ads, no nonsense, just football. Visit theathletic.co.uk forward slash United We Stand to start your 30-day free trial and get 50% off your annual subscription. The Athletic, the new home of football. Welcome to the latest United We Stand podcast. I'm Andy Mitten and I'm at the Ritz Club beneath the Ritz Hotel in London and it's extremely opulent. There are beautiful chandeliers in a room dressed in gold leaf and my descriptive powers are not going to be very good because I don't know so much about uh, furnishings. Someone just dropped something. And I'm with Michael Knighton and everybody listening to this will know Michael. Um, chiefly for what happened 30 years ago. I was stood on the Stratford end that day when Manchester United's chairman-elect walked into the middle of the field, juggling a ball in a full United kit. He was only in his 30s and ran towards the Stratford end and I was among the tens of thousands who cheered him wildly. This wasn't what football chairman did. Martin Edwards, who wasn't a popular figure at the time, he was the chairman. He was set to be moving over. Michael, thanks for joining us on the United We Stand podcast. How would you describe this room that was sat in beneath the Ritz Hotel? Well, first of all, uh, Andy, thanks very much for inviting me to have a chat uh, to, about the great football club, of course. Yes, this is a wonderful French room. Now, let me tell you, yes, it is opulent. Uh, very opulent, there's no question about that. But I joined here more than 30 years ago with Jimmy Hill. Those of a certain age group will remember Jimmy Hill. and Sir John Hall, who was chairman of Newcastle United. And we used to come here for coffee and have meetings. Uh, and I do still use it uh, for meetings. And as we were both in London, come to my club, and here we are today. It's a beautiful French room of the French style with wonderful Kingwood furniture and... Uh, of course, it is OTT. Well, look, it's the Ritz in London. I wouldn't want anyone to think that I live the high life and, uh, you know, I'm, I, I'm such a, uh, a snob that I would only... I just use this because I've been a member a long time. And, uh, but it is beautiful. It's a beautiful room. You're based in, in Derbyshire now. Yes. How old are you now? Oh, goodness me. Look, I'm an old man. Let's just say I'm a pensioner now. Okay. Uh, and uh, my hair is grey and not dark. People wouldn't recognise me, thank goodness. The, fa- the infamous moustache is gone. Uh, but touch wood, I'm still fit. I'm still healthy. Uh, so I count my blessings. I still love the game. And, uh, of course, the great Reds will always be very close to my heart. You follow United results now? Well, of course. Look, I was a director for three years. Um... Always interested, always follow Manchester United. Why wouldn't I as an ex-director? They are, for me, the greatest football club in the world. OK, there's Real Madrid, there's Barcelona, and we can debate all along. To me, Manchester United is the greatest football club in the world. It's got more Facebook members. It's got 75 million worldwide supporters. Some reports say it's got over 300 million supporters. Some say 1 billion. Some do. Uh, I think that might be stretching it uh, a little bit, Andy. But, um, look, it's Manchester United, for God's sake. Uh, Wonderful history. Uh, I played my little part in that. Uh, Some will say, very controversially, they must read the book 
the book is so coming you've done, out. So you've done a book. This, no, this, this, I haven't done it. Right. Nothing to do with me whatsoever. I'm not the writer, not the author. It's been written by a Cambridge graduate, a historian called Philip Vine. Uh, I have had uh, very little to do with that book apart from giving Philip my private papers and my diaries. I gave him those more than 20 years ago when he first approached me. You'll have to read the book to find so out. there's a lot of United in the book. It's just about Manchester United, right. nothing else. Your time at United. It's just about my time at Manchester United, but I will say this. Having seen the book now, it's just about to be published, it's very unorthodox in its style and the way it's written. Philip, a very clever man, obviously, has done almost a social commentary about that time, that, that era of what football was like in the 80s, those very dark days, with the travesties, with Hillsborough, with Heysel, uh, with the way the game was managed then by the authorities and the way many chairmen run their football clubs. So it's very much a social commentary. It's almost a social history. I suppose he being a historian, you can understand that. But some people will find it very, very different from most football books. But it is about my time at Manchester United. It is about the bid. It is about my time as a director for three years. People, if you like Manchester United, they will love it. Are you happy with the book? Um, that's a good question. I would have written it very differently. I've got to be honest. Uh, but I've had, uh, you know, you don't have jurisdiction. The publishers and the writer, it's their, it's their, their work, their book. I would have written it very differently in a different style. But he's a very good writer, indeed. So 1989, that was the year that we started United We Stand. The Hillsborough disaster happened in the, in the April. Football was in a very bad place. You um, started to meet Martin Edwards with a view to taking over Manchester United that summer. One of the things you wanted to do, and Martin Edwards had told me that he was attracted by your idea of funding the Stratford End, it needed replacing. It was going to become a huge terrace. It was it was decaying, and you wanted to develop the ground. You had big ambitions for the club. You were about to become chairman, and then you walk onto the pitch that day before the first game of the season at home to Arsenal. When did you decide you were going to go on the pitch, and what are your recollections of of when you did that? Well, look, there was logic behind my showmanship. Some would say buffoonery. They can say what they like. I'm not interested in that. Did you enjoy it? Oh, wow. Who wouldn't? Look, every football fan in the world, whether you're 8 or 80, everybody wants to juggle a ball and smash it in the net at the Stretford end. Who wouldn't want to do that? It wasn't... That wasn't just my motivation. At the time, people forget, in 1989, there was a massive disconnect between the boardroom and the real people at Manchester United, the fans. They are the most important people, together with the manager and players. There was this disconnect. I wanted to show the fans, look, I'm one of you. I'm a football fan first and a businessman second. I wanted to show them that I had empathy. I could align myself with them. I was a real football man. And when I juggled that ball from the halfway line right down to the penalty area to smash it in that Stretford end, they must have known, yeah, he's a football man. And so that was because the logic. You could, you could play a bit. I could play a You'd bit. You've been a player as a kid. Yes, been a player as a kid. Played for my school, my county, uh, and was about to play for England school boys when I was injured. I then joined Coventry City as a ground staff boy, and then had a very serious injury. My career was over before it ever began. Uh, so, and not oddly enough, it was Noel Cantwell who came 
ex-Manchester United to be the manager when I joined Coventry City. And Jimmy Hill, who you mentioned, he was later involved at Coventry City. Oh, Jimmy transformed from a lower league club and took them right to the big boys. My uncle John first... played for Coventry City, John Mitten, Charlie's son. He, he moved from Leicester City, where he was also a wicketkeeper for Leicestershire County Cricket Club, and he went to Coventry City, but I think he only played about 20 games in... In, in the first team there, that would be in the in, in the sixties. Well, look, uh, Andy, you're like me. You have a heritage of sport. My own great grandfather, as you know, played in FA Cup final, won first division championship medals with Sheffield Chef Wednesday. Wednesday yeah. uh, his brother played for Aston Villa, amongst others. Um, most of my uncles played very high standard non-league football. We're both from football families. Your own uncle, the great Charlie Mitten. 146 games for United, 50 goals. Uh, what a character he was. Uh, fabulous. And, and as you know, he was a bit like myself, a controversial figure. Colourful. Uh, he was, <laughs> uh, yes, colourful would say. I like that when people describe me as colourful rather than controversial. Well, well I mean, Charlie carried on cashing my great-grandmother's <laughs> pension book for nine months after she passed away. You know, my mother loved, loved Charlie. She just, she was, it was great, but he was a, he had, he had a roguish element. Look, he was well, a great too. player, fabulous winger, of course. Great he, footballer, yeah. Look, he was earning £12 a week at the time, and he thought, hang on, I can go to Colombia and earn £40 a week and get a £5,000 signing on fee, which is what he did. Yeah. And then, of course... And have a racehorse. And have a racehorse. And he, a maid. He was, he was an unbelievable character. And, of course, he's an autobiography. Uh, don't tell me... Uh, the Bogotá Bandit. That's right, yeah. And uh, I seem to remember that, uh, yes, what a character. He then returned to England when, of course, Colombia um, had removed themselves from the jurisdiction of FIFA. And uh, so they left, and, and, and then the whole uh, gambit of higher wages came in, and a lot of footballers went, your uncle being one, Charlie... Alfredo Di Stefano went there. Yes, Hector Real absolutely. went there. I mean, these, were, these were key players oh, for Real were, Madrid. These were your David Beckhams of they the day. And, you, and your uncle was in, in that company. Well, he got visited in, in Bogota by a young lawyer from Madrid um, who came to see four players. One of them was Di yeah. Stefano Real. Absolutely. And he was called um, Santiago Bernabeu. And he yeah. said, I'm building up this club, Real Madrid, using public subscriptions. And he wanted to sign Charlie. But my, my great auntie Charlie's wife, she, she got homesick. She moved back to Manchester after six months, took the boys with them. Yes. Um, Charlie Junior still lives in Manchester. John lives in Bristol. Um, of course, and, and Charlie, just to interrupt you, Charlie was then banned for six months yeah, by well, the was, FA. Uh, and all his wages, and he was fine and goodness, was all, didn't put Charlie down. Matt Busby then sold him for 22000 to Fulham. Yeah, which was a lot of money. A lot of money. A huge it, amount. It just shows you the so, pedigree of but, the man. But before that, he had to, having not gone to Madrid, he played Sunday League football in Salford because he, he didn't have any rights as a player because clubs owned the contracts. Yes. And players were Absolutely. served, they had no rights, and so, then he went, yeah. went to Fulham. And, but we can talk about Charlie, and maybe we'll leave that for yeah, another yeah. time. Um, you you wanted to walk onto the pitch that day before Arsenal. It was a beautiful sunny day. You got changed in the changing room with yeah, the players. Yeah, I did. I did. The players must have thought, "Oh, is this?" Uh... Did they say anything to you? <laughs> well, they were. Uh, look, there's always football banter. I think they think it's strange. Chairman just don't go, get stripped off, and then go on the pitch. It was a deliberately unorthodox introduction. Did you have boots? Of course, I did. Were they yours? Yeah, they were. So you went to the ground with your Absolutely. boots? Absolutely. So Why thought, wouldn't I? I'm going to do this. I, I wanted... Did you tell anyone you were going to no, do it? No, no one. Not um, even your wife, nobody? Nobody. I, I, I simply, as I say, 
the raison d'etre, the logic was, let me show these people, the most important people at any football club, let me show these fans I am one of them. I have empathy, they can align their own feelings with my feelings and vice versa. It was critical, especially with my model that I was taking to the club. If you don't have the fans with you, then forget it. And the model that I took to that football club, as you know, I'd gone public saying I want to make it the greatest football brand in the world, and of course I was slaughtered in the media. Because of the word brand. Because of the word brand. You know, it's, it's not a washing up powder, it's not a bar of chocolate, and this idiot's calling Manchester United a brand. How dare he? But I did in 89. I said, I'm going to make this the greatest sporting brand in the world. I'm going to make it an institution that can go out on planet football to buy any player in the world because that's the only way you could restore Manchester United to where it should be. People forget, Andy, the club had been underperforming. I mean, it was... They've not won the league since 68. Correct. Crowds were down to 38,000. Correct. Old Trafford needed redeveloping. They were about to sack Alex Ferguson. Were they? Well, you'll have to read the book. Let me tell you, there were signs around that stadium in 19... You're crap, Fergie. Tara, you can't do it. Pete Molyneux sign, yeah. He's, he's written for yes. many years. You know. But that, that there was a, the, you know, fans were divided, um, but there was definitely a feeling that a, a change of manager was due because the team were failing. The team were not performing. Look, this is a massive football club even then. But After it, three years of one manager. Three years of one manager. Look, he was finishing 15th and 11th and 12th. This is Manchester United you're talking about. You know, they should be up there, top two virtually the leaders of the field because that is the nature of Manchester United and so they were massively underachieving as I say Alex Ferguson was very unpopular with a section of the media as well as the fans and they were just saying when is the act going to fall this man is a failure what no one knew of course was Alex was already destructing the structure deconstructing it, rebuilding it from the bottom. Did you know that? Could you see that happening? Yes, of course. But the point is, he was in a very precarious position. There's no question. Did you support him? Yes, of course, absolutely. Did you have a good relationship with him? I never had a crossword with Alex. And obviously, uh, we were, you know, we had a professional relationship. Alex had very few dealings with myself, really, apart from when he came to ask me, could he buy Gary Pallister? Because I was chairman-elect for 62 days. And I'd only been there a week. Martin Edwards had refused to go higher than 1.8 million. I know it's chicken feed now, but it was big money then. And Alex called me to a meeting. Martin Edwards did attend. I'd only been there, I don't know, 10 days. He said, Michael, what can we do? And I simply said, yes, go and buy Gary Pallister. Just pay what it takes. I saw the look on Martin Edwards' face, I have to say. It was a picture. Uh, But I had to show Alex Ferguson. I was prepared to shake that Manchester United money tree and not keep it stable and still without any apples falling. I had to show that I was going to back this manager. Alex, I said, in fact, Alex, go and do the deal today. Phone Middlesbrough, say, what is your asking price? It was 2.3 million in the end, a British record. And yes, I sanctioned that verbally to Alex. The deal was done, obviously, paperwork by Martin Edwards, of course, because he was still the chief executive. But it was myself who sanctioned that deal. Fact. Anyone denies that, I'll stand up in any court and say, well, you're a liar. You came to me and I sanctioned it. And let's be honest, Martin Edwards would never have, he would never have broken the British record. He would never have paid £2.3 million for a player. He broke it with Brian Robson. Yeah, yes, that is true. Uh, thanks to uh, Atkinson, Ron Atkinson. Uh, he was gold dust. 
at the time. Of course, he became the England captain. Uh, but look, there, there was a degree of parsimonious. Uh, yeah, there was. Yeah, and caution would be caution. Mr. Edwards, yes, uh, caution. And, and look, and to be fair to Martin Edwards, he came in for a lot of unfair criticism. But no one can deny the club was underachieving, yeah. and that is a fact. Yeah. Uh, but since the day I juggled that ball on that pitch, from the day of that sunny, brilliant day, has it ever looked back? No. Did it go on to achieve what I'd set out in my blueprint? and where I, I told everybody I could make that football club into a £150 million leisure vehicle. So you saw a future in, in satellite television, in more merchandising. You thought that they were under... Um, they weren't getting value out of Manchester United's huge support. Absolutely. Not Tot Tottenham had a higher turnover than Manchester absolutely. United. Absolutely. And at least Tottenham had, had, had certainly seen they the... They might have the soon again. Yeah, oh, yeah. Uh, they'd certainly seen the light of day. And as you know, they went to buy Paul Gascoigne. Ferguson missed out on he because Edwards wouldn't pay the money. Yeah. Alex was very upset about that. But the point is this. Yes, anyone who was a genuine student of the game and had analysed the game could see what was around the corner... And if you believed in the new developments that were happening at that time with satellite TV, you didn't need to be a genius. You didn't need to be a visionary to say, hang on, this product of football as a global entertainment industry could be massive. And the greatest club in the world should be Manchester United. I predicted it. I showed how it could happen in 1989. Of course, I was ridiculed at the time, Walter Mitty, some kind of nutter, why did they ridicule you? Because I think the concepts were so... appeared to be so outraged at the time. I mean, I did an interview and... Because satellite TV was so fledgling, wasn't it? It had only just been formed and every, everybody... People, yes, everybody to a man in the industry said, satellite TV will never take off. What they didn't know, the digital age was coming. Satellite TV would, of course, eventually overtake terrestrial television. People forget the, the sponsorship fees, the rights... The broadcasting rights were only 3 million, then 12 million, only 44 million when I came in, but I predicted they would be worth half a billion very soon. And of and course. You were laughed at for that. Oh, absolutely. You ridiculous. had a very good ride off, off the media initially um, when you'd run out onto the pitch, and within a few weeks that had turned against you. I think the Daily Mirror were driving it, who were owned by Robert Maxwell, who tried to buy Manchester United. Did you feel that there was a vendetta against you or oh. was criticism of you was it legitimate because people were saying questioning whether you had the money to take over Manchester United well read the book you'll find out for that one for did you have the money well read the book um, if you've got half a brain that's a yes if you've got half a brain we appreciate the support of our sponsors and Harry's have been with us for a long time lots of you have ordered their razors and have been very happy with them uh, Harry's is also a company that supports the football community, not just by supporting our podcast, but supporting football's other guys, the five-a-side teams, the Sunday League squads, the people that bring out the bibs and lay down the cones for the love of the game. And Harry's will be celebrating grassroots football with a competition at the start of March where, I think, changing room makeovers, new kits, goalposts, much needed other things to revitalise the grounds of local teams. So if you're involved with football at that level, then... Keep an eye out uh, for this. Uh, for Harry's, to find out about more about the competitions or to get started shaving with Harry's, head to harrys.com forward slash united. For £3.95, you'll receive a trial set worth £11.50, which includes a razor handle, 
a five blade razor cartridge, foaming shave gel and a travel blade cover. We've read the Harry's story loads of times on here. It's a great startup company. And again, go to harrys.com forward slash united right now. That's harrys.com forward slash united. Hang on. This is Manchester United. This is a young whippersnapper in his 30s. Nobody had heard of the man. And did that go against you? Well, certainly... Because you weren't part uh, of the football establishment? Absolutely, and in certain sections. Of course, I was a football... Uh, more than a believer, it was my life. My heritage had been football. I played the game. But I loved the game. You weren't in the football world? No, you not at all. In, in completely the... unknown, completely unknown at that stage. But I was a student of the game, I'd researched the game, and, of course, the catalyst, 15th of April, 1989, that horrific travesty at Hillsborough where my great-grandfather was a player for 15 years and I sat in my farmhouse in Yorkshire watching that just down the road from Hillsborough thinking my god something's got to happen the way fans are treated they're caged in like animals that the authorities we've got to change this game and I'd already been researching the game and I knew I was going to make an impact I knew I had to become involved I'd spoken to Halifax Town I'd spoken to Bolton Wanderers and when the call came about Manchester United, wow, that fitted my model beyond all expectation for me. I thought, wow, this is the club I've got to buy. And, uh, and, and it didn't quite turn out like I would have hoped because I surrendered that contract, gave it back to Martin. I went on the board. Uh, I'd given him my blueprint. I think Martin got it confused with the long-form accountant's report. Uh, but my ideas which I publicised well before this happened in a Financial Times interview on the 12th of September. I said, look, I'm buying potential. I'm going to turn it into a £150 million company where we can go out and buy any player in the world bar none. We can outbid Real Madrid. We can outbid Barcelona. We can out certainly outbid anyone in, in England. And that was my goal. Surprise, surprise, 30 years on, we've just paid £80 million for Harry Maguire, great purchase, by the way, uh, Podga, Pod, uh, Paul. Uh, we, we, we can buy any player in the world. That was my ambition. So the potential, the commercial potential has, has been realised, and that started in the early 90s. The merchandise, Edward Friedman was brought in from, from Tottenham, and he did, he did um, very well. Uh, success on the pitch, um, the ground was was developed, which is what needed doing in 89. But you mentioned the Financial Times interview, September 89. That was a time when football clubs were not seen as attractive investments. They were loss-making. Um, they were tiny businesses. Tiny businesses, massive loss-making. It was cold bovril and stale pies. Some of the stadiums throughout the industry were appalling, you know, ashes for uh, and, and railway sleepers for terracing in some grounds, uh, massively lacking investment. The, the paddock had wooden terracing in, in 1989. Absolutely. This had to change. Fans had, I wanted to make fans feel they almost had to wipe their feet to go into a stadium. A family sport. Let's make it where it should be. It's the greatest sport in the world. Let's treat our fans as the greatest fan base in the world because they are the industry. But to come back to your point, 
1989, the club had just announced losses at Manchester United of 1.3 million. Turnover was 7 million. So you can imagine when I was speaking about making it the greatest sporting brand in the world and turning it into a 150 million pound leisure company, yes, I was ridiculed and I was laughed at. And people thought I was some kind of lunatic. I suppose you can understand why, because those predictions were so wide of them reality at that stage. But I think 30 years on, I actually underestimated. So you, you feel vindicated. Did you make any mistakes at the time? Yes, I did. I shouldn't have given him the contract back for a start. No. I should have just cemented that and, and, and completed on the deal. That was a mistake, with hindsight. Not that I would probably do anything... Uh, at the time, I didn't need to own Manchester United. I just wanted to make a difference. I knew I'd got those ideas. I gave that plan to Martin Edwards. I said, look, there it is. Use it. Not all credit to me. Of course it's not. You've got to give credit to Martin Edwards and the board of directors and, of course, the commercial director who they brought in. They, of course, implemented everything and they brought their own ideas. Certainly, Friedman, you know, you've got to give credit there. But the catalyst for change happened on that day I went onto that pitch. I knew what was coming. I knew what was around the corner. If Martin Edwards himself knew all that, why was he selling it me for the paltry sum of £10 million, which was nothing? It was a giveaway. He clearly, at the time, couldn't really see the wood for the trees. That's an absolute obvious statement. You don't give away a company that's now worth £3.2 billion for £10 million. In a it's not long ago, really. Uh, but look... Martin comes in for unfair criticism at times. Do you? Did you? Well, I'll leave that for others to decide. Uh, I was so unorthodox, going onto the pitch as a young man. Uh, it never been seen before, probably will never be seen again. So inevitably, you were setting yourself up to be questioned. The criticism was um, horrendously strong. And, from uh, the mainstream media. From the, the mainstream media, media the really driven by the Daily Mirror. Because they had an agenda. They had an agenda. They wanted to completely discredit myself. And at the time, but how did you deal with that? Because now they did have PR people. There'd be briefs going out. I had no PR people. I had no infrastructure like that. I was just on my own. I was a young man. I knew what I wanted to do. I knew what I wanted to achieve. I knew that I could make Manchester United the greatest sporting brand in the world, bar none. But you've got this machine raging against you. Yes. And you're a young lad with no experience. Absolutely. Of how to deal with and it. it was horrendous. And I felt for my family. My family's always been my motivation to protect them and to do the best I could for my family. It was a horrendous time. For three months, I was on the front pages and the back pages, being called all sorts of things. And, uh, Did any of it make you laugh? Was there any dark humour oh, in it? Or was yeah. it just a really bleak time for you? Oh, there was massive dark humour on many times. You know, uh, Robert Maxwell, I think it was one headline, this is where he lives, and he'd taken a picture of a small terraced house somewhere in Manchester. A total lie, of course. And he said, I was, I was so poor that I was receiving food parcels because I couldn't afford food. When, in fact, I was actually wealthier than Robert Maxwell in 1989. We all know... Maxwell was a crook. He, 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 well, look, in 1992 on Bonfire Night, when he went missing, some say he jumped off the boat because he was about to be exposed as having no money and being a, a fraudster and having robbed his pension fund. Well, he did. He did. That is all true. And yet there was a man who destroyed my credibility. He destroyed uh, via his own... I mean, remember, he was a media 
a media He was mogul. a baron. He was yeah. a baron. He owned the Daily Mirror. He owned the Sporting Life. He owned the Daily Record in Scotland, uh, which I've been heavily involved in. So he slaughtered my reputation. And you know, Andy, you can spend a lifetime building up your reputation as an honest, straightforward, ordinary guy making his way. It, spending your life doing that could be destroyed in ten minutes. Mine was utterly castigated by Robert Maxwell and his newspaper, Empire. And you have to live with that, as I've had to live with it for 30 years. But I'm big enough and old enough and wise enough now to know, look, most of it is fish and chip paper the very next day. But you just have to live with that. You, you were a board member for a considerable amount of time. Um, so people like um, Sir Bobby and, and Michael Edelson... Morris Watkins were all there. You you were going to games? You were watching United games? Did you enjoy it? Because the team was... In 90, they finished uh, 13th. And, but by the time you were leaving, they, had, they won the Cup Winners' Cup in Rotterdam. They'd won the FA Cup. Exactly. The good times were starting to roll. Oh, absolutely. Look, silverware began to roll on. Uh, we went on to win the FA Cup, as I always thought we would. Were you at Wembley? Of course I was. Wasn't I at Wembley? Come on. I never missed a match. Home and away. You went Even, to away games, yeah. I went to away games, never missed a match. I went to friendlies. I was there every... I was a, every board meeting. I was a full active member. The point is this. My ambitions for that club began to unfold. We won the FA Cup in 1990. We won the European Cup Winners' Cup the following year. We won the to Rotterdam? Of course I did. We won the European Super Cup. We won the... Who against? Well, you know who against. Go on, a quiz the, question for you. quiz question. Boston. Did you think? No, no, that was in Rotterdam, yeah, in and, Rotterdam. The, and the Super Cup was at Old Trafford. Uh, against Red Star Belgrade, yeah, yeah. and we won 1-0. And they were a great team. A great team. Red Star Belgrade. We did 1-0, you're right, we, I'm giving you that. Yeah, one McClare penalty. Yeah, correct. And, should never have won. And, and we should never have won, and also we should never have played it there. It was the trouble starting in Belgrade, where we had to yeah. play it there. Uh, but look, of course I was in Rotterdam against Barcelona, Mark Hughes and everything. Of course I was. Um, I never missed a match. But the silverware began to roll then. And you remember, in 1989, I got there and I said, Alex Ferguson must give me a trophy every year. Because I was asked that question. I said, he knows that. What was his reaction when you said that? Uh, I think he smiled and shivered at the same time. Yeah. I said, I want a cup every single year as the new chairman or chairman-elect. I said, he knows that. But look, Alex Ferguson, uh, he's a good human being. That's the first point. He'd broken the mould uh, at Aberdeen, an unfashionable club. He'd smashed the dominance of Celtic and Rangers. He, didn't, he had nothing to prove to me at all. And he was a good man. But I did say to him, I said, you need to give me a trophy every single year. He produced in spades. He gave me 38. Yes, I was only there for three years, but he gave me the FA Cup. He gave me the share in the Charity Shield. He gave me the European Super Cup. He gave me the Cup Winners' Cup. What more can I say? Have you ever been back since? I know you were in charge at Carlisle United for... For a decade. Have you, ever, have you ever been to a Manchester United game since? Yes, not at Old Trafford. And I've got to be fair to even the likes of Bobby Charlton. You know, Bobby said, look, when I resigned as a director, said, Michael, you know, you'll always be welcome back at Old Trafford, uh, which, which obviously uh, contradicts... Uh, you know, Bobby and I were never close. But at the end of the day, huge respect for Bobby Charlton. Michael Edelston... Hugely talented man, very successful businessman. He was there. They had some talent on that board. Morris Watkins, uh, great legal mind. Uh, there were some talented people there, and uh, I never had a crossword with any of them. That is a fact. There was only one individual 
at Old Trafford, which I had a blazing row with. Absolutely. An absolutely blazing row. And you're going to have to read the book to find out who that was with, but it was a very serious row. And that was the only person ever that I fell out with at Old Trafford. I had a very professional, very cordial relationship with everyone, uh, especially the backroom team, you know, on the administrative side, they were all fantastic people. And a lot of credit should go for them, um, how, they, how they managed that football club. Why the, the club going wrong now? Has the, the commercial potential has, has clearly been realised. They are the world leaders. There's in terms of making money off the field, off on the pitch, it's slightly different. Absolutely it's been right. failing. Absolutely right. Now, let me just say this. I always knew they would be the greatest brand in football. I said it at the time. I always knew they could go out eventually one day and buy any player in the world. However, what has happened at that football club, they have massively underachieved since Alec resigned in 2013. Massively underachieved. They've tried David Moyes. They've tried Van Gaal. They've tried even Jose, and they've failed. They've now got Oli, going to Solskjaer. I would start to focus my attention on the back, you know, the chief executive and the backroom staff. Why do you put an accountant to run a football club? Is he a football man? You know, it's like the English Football League. We've just lost Bury, 1885. They've gone out of existence when a bid, apparently, according to good reports, was credible at £7 million. They've got Debbie Jevons, an ex-tennis player. She's the chairman of the football. What's going on here? We need... There's some big questions that should be asked at Manchester United about the executive backroom staff. If I was there today, I'd want to interview Mr Ed Woodward and say, tell me what your plans are. Tell me why you think we're going wrong. Because this club is underachieving. It's lost its way. Whether he likes it or not, it's lost its way. Now, OK, you could say, well, hang on, that's a bit unfair. You're competing against sovereign funds at Manchester City. You're competing against billionaires. This is still the greatest football club in the world with the ability to generate the most income in the world. Something is wrong. And I don't think it's just on the managerial side. I think, look, players... Top players were earning six, seven thousand pounds a week when I was there. They're now earning four hundred thousand pounds a week in some cases. They've always. All right, I'm no longer involved in football. If I was, Andy, I would completely review the management structure at the English Football League. They changed their name in 2015. It's the Football League. I would completely look at the FA. How we can let Bury Football Club, established in 1885, three years before the Football League was formed in. 1888, let them go out of business when they just got promotion for the sake of a pittance. Four players at Manchester United, monthly wages, would solve that problem. We've, the industry's lost its way, and you've got to look at executive management at the FA and the Football League. It needs an overview, it needs changing, it needs changing. we've got to look at football club ownership, you know, how that needs to be tightened and strengthened with an even better test for um, fitness and properness of owners. I'm all in favour of that. And But the game has lost its way. There's no question about that. And uh, agents... I wrote to Graham Kelly, the then chief executive of the FAO years ago, and I said, sort this agent, sort these football agents out. You've got second-hand car salesmen, you've got 
unscrupulous predators running the industry regarding player movements. It's got to stop. Has it? Not really. They've played around at the edges and said, well, you've got to be now licensed. But I've always questioned the authorities. And as I say, we've got a tennis player, an ex-tennis player. She, she went to then the rugby union, got involved there at an executive level. She fell out with them and left. She ended up as the chairman, albeit as a temporary position, of the football, English Football League. But what's going on? You know, I would review the whole structure. Uh, in fact, I'm just writing a second blueprint now. It's just finished. I could give it to any football club because even today there are areas of commercialism which they think they've exploited everything and they haven't. It's a second generation in the new digital age. There's so much more they could be doing and it's a model that I believe that could take the game onto a different level altogether, improving it for fans and certainly improving it as a model how to run the industry. And I'm just about probably to go to China with that model, I think. China will one day win the World Cup. That is my prediction. Uh, because its president, Xi Jinping, we can all go on about human rights. We can all go on about how they run that country and look at what's happening in Hong Kong at the moment. How do you control 1.3 billion people in China? Yes, they're a one-party state, but let me tell you, they will win the World Cup one day. And uh, I love the Chinese. I love what they're doing. Uh, but to come back to this country and Manchester United, which is what all our fans are interested in, let's look at the executive team at Manchester United. I know the Glazer family are controversial. They, were, they, they bought the club with a very highly leveraged deal, borrowed a lot of money. I think they borrowed, what, I don't know, 660 million, valuing the club at 800 million. They've since de-geared it a lot with bond issues and so on. Um, and to be fair, they've bankrolled the club. You cannot deny that they have. But they need to put a better executive team in control to manage their affairs. And I would question Ed Woodward. I've never met the man. I'd love to sit down and say, tell me about yourself and what you see for this football club. Because I'll tell you what, Mr Woodward, you are massively underachieving. It's like turning the clock back to 1989. What the hell is going on? Tell me who you are, what you are. I don't... You've got something wrong here. He's about 100 metres from where we're sat now. Should we go and see him? Yeah. <laughs> Absolutely. I'll go and He's see not him. in this building. He's very close to it. I'll, I'll um, go and see him. And, we, and I would love to challenge him. We're running out on, on, on time now. Um, after Manchester United, you went to Carlisle United. Yes. You talked about Berry going out of the Football League. Carlisle United came very close... Was it in '97, Jimmy Glass? The great Jimmy Glass. I think, Just tell uh, me that story, because this is this is what I mean. It's it's a very well known story in Carlisle. Yes. This is one of the greatest stories in football. Absolutely. Wonderful. So you're 92nd, going into the final day of the season, yep, yep. and the bottom team goes down. Yes. So you're going down. Yeah. You're playing at home to Carlisle. So you had a home game. Yes. Plymouth. And you. Yes, I think it was Plymouth. And you've got a goalkeeper who's on loan. Let me for... tell you something, Annie. Let me just take over the story. I, I owned that football club for ten years. Yeah. Um, we had five, six wonderful years. We, we had a runaway championship. Uh, I took them to Wembley twice. They'd never been there. And let me tell you, to see little Carlisle United walk out between the Twin Towers, as it was then, in front of one of the biggest gates at Wembley the season, more than 70... 4,000 people 
in our famous deck chair strip, which I designed. I saw you. I saw you at Barnet away in '95. Yeah. Mick Wadsworth. Yeah, yeah, brilliant. Yeah. Yeah, love, love, love Mick Wadsworth. We walked out there, and I'd been to Wembley with Manchester United, mm. with Little Carlisle United. Funny, both called United, both lived on Warwick Road at the time. To see my Little Carlisle walk out in front of that crowd, and we played ourselves. It was against Birmingham City. We played so well. It's brilliant. That was one of my greatest days in football. But to come back to the Jimmy Glass story, so we had five great years, wonderful years, uh, and I spent a lot of money on the stadium and so on. But the cash resources were low, and certainly I had to think very carefully about how much more I could invest in that football club. And then we had a series of serious injuries, and this is football, it's cyclical, it goes like this. And then the local newspaper very much turned against me, and then fan power just coming in with supporters' trust and so on. So that I think they were hell-bent on regime change, as often happens at lower leagues, probably in the uh, late 90s. And uh, there was quite a campaign, as always happens, when your team is underperforming as we were. But I was slaughtered in the early years for making so much money. The headlines, Knighton makes more money than Liverpool at Carlisle. Why isn't he buying every player on the planet? And that sort of thing. So... The last few years, yes, they did become controversial. And because of injuries, we were struggling on the pitch. We had a poor season. We were at the bottom. We needed to win that final match. Scarborough finished five minutes before us. But, you know, I've always believed in a strange way. I never thought we would go out of the league. And I said to the club doctor behind me, I said, we'll score. We'll score. Don't worry. We will survive. Jimmy Glass was on loan. And in the 94th minute of extra time, and it was one all, he ran from his pitch, and I turned to the doctor behind me and I said, he'll score. Watch this, he'll score. So you needed to win we needed to, to stay win, in the football to league? to stay in the football league. Um, the, court, the champagne cork bottle was already being celebrated at Scarborough because they finished five minutes early and said, We're, we've survived. And I said to the doc, I said, doc, we'll score. And he ran up. Corner... 95th minute, Scott Dobie ro- leaped like a salmon, fabulous header, came off, ricocheted off the keeper, Jimmy Glass, bang, goal. 95th minute of extra time. So not only do I believe in myths and ghosts, and I don't believe in flying saucers, by the way. A, a Didn't com- you want to see one? You were reporting Yeah, yeah I know, absolute lie. I did see a UFO, I don't know what it was. But the story that was later created was a complete and utter... Silver disc. Uh, yeah, 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 that's all I saw. A complete and utter fabricated story by a, a young pop reporter. Anyway, that's by the by. But what I'm saying is, after that on-loan goalkeeper scored in the 95th minute to keep us in the Football League, I believed in everything. I said, you know, the gods and the angels of destiny were with us. But I did say to the dot behind me, I said, we'll score. And we did. And look, we stayed up. And uh, I then uh, held, there was a massive campaign to, for regime change. They, everyone thinks there's a pharaoh around the corner like it's happened at Manchester City. And my position became untenable. Uh, again, thinking of my family, I left the club in 2002, sold my interest, and that was it for me. Always loved the game, still a passionate supporter of the game. I've written a second blueprint, we'll give it to some football club. Should give it to Man United, really. I should go and see Ed, Wood, uh, Ed uh, Woodward and say, I'll tell you what, son, if you really want to know how to run a football club, read that. I won't be doing that. If Glazers want to contact me, they can. 
Would you run back out on the pitch? A hundred percent. It's a better pitch now. It's, yeah, it is. Look, I wouldn't change anything that I did on that day because the disconnect between boardroom and fans needed to be bridged. And I did it that day. And the game, uh, that football club, that great football club, Manchester United, always close to my heart, has never looked back from that day, which has now gone down as a piece of iconic folklore history. And I don't care what people think about me. I would always do that. I lived for every eight-year-old to eight-year-old. I lived the dream for that day because they would want to do that if they were in a position to do so. But there was logic behind my, my alleged buffoonery. Imagine if you'd missed. I know. From the Stratford end. What about that? Or if I dropped the ball from my head, my knee, my shoulder when I was juggling it down to the edge of the penalty area. I could have fallen flat on my face, do you know, and it never entered my head. You're confident. I was sufficiently arrogant in my young 30 years, sufficiently arrogant, sufficiently confident that I wouldn't drop that ball in front of that massive crowd. And when I smashed it into that Stratford end, I felt like Cantona. I felt like Beckham. I felt like George Best. I felt like the great Bobby Charlton. I've got so much admiration for Bobby. Uh, he's a complicated character, is Bobby, but I, I love the man. Thank you very much for your time, Michael. Thank you, Andy, and good luck for the rest of the season. Let's hope they sort it out at Old Trafford. They need to. <laughs>